Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway. So join us as we discuss how, together, we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Sally Donald and Hannah Bardell MP. Sally graduated with a degree in psychology in 2016 and joined the constituency team in Inverness near Badenoch and Strathspey, and she now works for Angus Robertson MSP at Holyrood. She's Women's Officer at Edinburgh Central Branch of the SNP and recently successfully submitted a motion to the SNP conference seeking action on street harassment, which was passed overwhelmingly with support from many MSPs and MPs to boot. She's a passionate feminist and an admiral lover, as her pet rabbit Tinkerbell can testify to. Hannah Bardell is the MP for Livingston, where she was born. She studied at the University of Stirling, where she served as National Union of Students Women's Officer. She's worked in television with STV and JMTV London, where she was assistant producer of the Sunday programme. Always outspoken since her election in 2015, she caused a stir when she was photographed playing keepy-uppy with a football in the Commons Chamber in 2018. Most recently, she's been central to work with the Scottish Government to save the Valneva vaccine plant in her own constituency, after the UK Government inexplicably cancelled the contract with them. Sally, Hannah, welcome to Scotland's Choice. Thanks for having us. Sally, before we uh, kick off with this episode, I wanted to say congratulations on the recent motion passed the SNP conference calling for action to tackle street harassment. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the campaign and the, the motion itself? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all. I'm delighted with the response it received. So what I guess people don't see is the kind of in the months leading up to conference, this sort of started with an idea I had when I'd been reading online that actually street harassment in Scotland and across the whole UK isn't criminalised at the moment. So that came from an experience I had at the start of the year where I'd reported a man for harassing me and nothing was ever done about it because um, why would it be? It's not illegal at the moment. Um, So then I wanted to see what I could do to kind of create change. And in my new role as women's officer in Edinburgh Central, I thought this is the perfect time to put something forward um, and see what we can do to put street harassment at the front of um, SNP policy. And luckily it went well. And Hannah, I I know you worked closely with Sally in supporting uh, this motion. You must be really, really pleased to see this being taken forward. Yeah, I'm delighted. And, you know, Sally and I didn't really know each other before this. And it's been a real pleasure to get to know Sally and her work. And, you know, she approached me to to support the motion, as folk often do when they're putting motions to conference. And we got chatting about it. And, you know, we really got, we got deep in amongst the topic, didn't we? We met for lunch. We talked about it. We talked about our own experiences, which, you know, in some ways can can be cathartic. And I think, you know, led us to a really enriching debate. And then we met with with Paul, who who supported it as well, Paul McLean, an MSP. Um, and he's been, you know, really integral in this work as well. But Sally has really led it. So it, it really has been, you know, it's 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 a very difficult topic. But I think people have to often remember that within 
the feminist movement, you know, celebration and activism can come alongside having fun. <laughs> and you can talk about these experiences and challenge them, but also, I suppose, enjoy yourself whilst doing it. And perhaps that's that's a, a good way to... to well, well, take it, take emotion, obviously, to conferences is one thing. Getting it passed, obviously, is fantastic as well. But I, th- I think listeners will be interested to know what happens next with this. What what Where does this go from here? Um, so I've been working alongside Paul since the... Um, since conference and he recently spoke in a debate on the um, 16 days of action in the Scottish Parliament and in that debate he asked if a government minister would meet with us to talk about this work so we've got that coming up and we also have a few other things coming up in the new year he's hosting um, a reception in parliament and a round table with organisations like Women's Aid, Rape Crisis to talk about street harassment, but also the more generic issue of violence against women and girls um, as a whole. So there's, yeah, there's lots of different things coming from it, which is very exciting. Exciting indeed. In this um, this episode, I'm keen to dive into the impact of policy decisions on women and crucially the important role that women play in shaping good governance and the uh, the obviously that leads into the independence debate. In an earlier episode, I spoke with Professor Karen Gentry about feminist foreign policy and during our discussion, Karen uh, also used the term people-centric when talking about feminist policies. And she was able to call on examples of people-centric policies from the Scottish Parliament and how this policy approach is shaping our society in Scotland. Uh, you know, we, we, what do you think of that, that approach? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely crucial. And I think for a lot of people out there, you know, feminism and feminist policy, you know, is, a, is, is, is just a word. You know, what, what does it actually mean? And and I think that, you know, Karen's interpretation of people-centric policies are, are really important. And in my speech to conference on Sally's motion, I drew the parallel between having a more feminist society and tackling street ha- harassment and violence against women, how that's not only really important to have men as part of the conversation, but how these issues affect men. You know, it's no coincidence that the rates of street harassment, of domestic violence against women, and you know, violence against women at the hands of male perpetrators is linked to the rate of male suicide and the rate of male violence mm. on the street. It all comes down to toxic masculinity and you know where society is at. So having policies that are, you might call feminist, whether that's whether that's baby boxes, whether that's childcare, that's not just about women because men are parents as well, mm-hmm. whether they are in heterosexual or same-sex relationships having a society that's inclusive of everybody and that supports everybody will contribute to uh, you know a better mental health uh, state of mental health and that's something that is you know is a huge issue and relates to to these aspects but i think a feminist foreign policy is also crucial because we're in the middle of a we're still in the middle of a global pandemic and as we stand we are facing a new variant that is coming out of countries that are less well off that are poorer and that's because health doesn't come at the end of a needle Mm -hmm. and world leaders at the moment are having to face the fact that we are we have variants because we have not got a vaccine rolled out across the world because we've been protect the uk has been so protectionist about them but also because we are not doing enough to to tackle global poverty and the bigger issues around the environment so a feminist foreign policy means that we will do things like when we're independent and able to buy or able to buy vaccines 
are able to invest uh, in, in globally in countries that are poorer to help their health comes, outcomes because nobody's safe till everybody's safe. And never has that been more apparent. Well, let, let, let's, talk, let's talk about that a, a bit further. Do, do you share, uh, Sally first, I think, with this, do you share Karen's view that with its limited powers, the Scottish Parliament has a record of delivering more feminist or people-centric policies? And if so, what examples come to mind and how could we go further than that with, uh, with independence for Scotland? Yeah, absolutely. The Scottish government has um, such a strong track record of delivering for women. There's things like the Women's Business Centre to support um, women starting up new businesses. There's the Women's Health Plan, which is going to put um, women's health and social care needs um, at the front of the Scottish government policy. We were the first country in the world to offer free period products in schools and colleges. Um, there's the equally safe strategy which tackles Indeed. safety on the streets for women so there's so many examples where we are world leading in putting women at the front and center of policy and with independence it's only going to get better with the more powers we have to implement these things and what do you think hannah yeah i, I completely agree unsurprisingly but what i would say is i mean drew you and i both sit at westminster as mps we were both elected in the same year in 2015 and what i know i've seen and i'm sure you've seen is an erosion of our human rights, of our civil liberties, of democracy at Westminster. And time and time again, the Scottish government is having to, is, is so I, you know, you take a step back and you think about all of these policies that the Scottish government has, lived, has implemented with a limited budget and without borrowing powers. And think about what it's done to plug the holes that Westminster is creating. The, the Scottish child payment, that, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, you know, so whether it's the bedroom tax, you know, whether it's topping up benefits, whether it's doubling the child payment, you know, we're doing all of those things and being incredibly creative against a background of a hostile environment and a government that is, you know, frankly, whether it's carbon capture, whether it's the Valneva plant in Livingston and the vaccine in Livingston that I've been working on recently, cancelling contracts for lateral flow tests that are made in, in uh, Alva in, in Stirlingshire. You know, it's a scorched earth approach to Scotland at the moment. And so we are not only doing our very best for our own citizens within the powers that we have, but we are having to mitigate what Westminster is doing. So imagine if we didn't have to clean up the mess of Westminster and we had all the borrowing powers and the powers of independence. You know, I, I'm not going to say that it's going to be a complete land of milk and honey, but we have proven, as Karen said, that we're able to do so much with the limited powers we have. But, but, imagine what more we could do with well, them. Let, let's imagine then that we did have those powers. What, what do you feel the impact of a more feminist or people-centric governance would be? Firstly, uh, obviously on women, uh, but secondly, and you, you touched on this earlier, Hannah, on society as a whole. Sally, what's, what's your view? So if I think about it in terms of women, I think of me and my friends. Um, what I would hope that would mean for us is that things that I spoke about in the motion, when we go out on the streets, we feel safer. That's such a basic human right, but one that we don't have at the moment, which would be just a massive change. Imagine, like it shouldn't be so hard to imagine a world where women feel safe on the streets. But then in the bigger picture, having more women in positions of power is only gonna be a good thing for the reasons Hannah said before. I think at the moment, 32% of MPs um, are women. That's such a shockingly low amount and having more women making these decisions um, in politics that affect all of us 
is so crucial because how can men speak for so many issues when they don't have the lived experience you do need women in there as well who have the lived experience to make and form those decisions well, actually according to united nations analysis as of september uh, 2021 women are serving as heads of state or heads of government in 24 countries at the current rate uh, gender equality in the highest positions of power will not be reached for another 130 years they, they also found that only 14 countries have achieved 50% or more women in cabinets with an annual increase of just 0.5%. Uh, gender parity in ministerial positions will not even be achieved until 2077. I think this shows just how much work still has to be done. Um, Hannah, you're at Westminster. Um, Westminster has long been described as a, an old boys club. Uh, has that been your assessment and uh, do the attitudes and institutions there have a distinct impact on female parliamentarians? Yes, in short. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to put in context that the year we got elected in 2015, there were more men in that sitting of parliament than had ever been women elected to the House of Commons in the nearly 100 years that we were able to stand for election which is a shocking statistic. And then in 2017, that was that hurdle was, was overcome, but we still have a, have a very long way to go. And I think that, you know, these things matter for all of the reasons that Sally highlights. And it's, it's, it's about gender, but it's also about class. And it's also about having diversity and particularly women from different walks of life, you know, when I talk to people like Dr. Philippa about her work as a breast surgeon consultant and what she has seen in her time and the changes to healthcare for women, you know, there were no women in Westminster speaking up for women's healthcare or what those their experiences might be of complications in childbirth, complications in, you know, any kind of, of surgery, you know, and, and, and there's so much work being done recently on just the very design, the design of policies or the design of even medical instruments that are just very masculine. And that's because we have not had women in power, you know, to, to make those points, to highlight these issues. And we do now, we have a, you know, a gender balance cabinet, we have a female first minister. They will not necessarily mean in and of themselves we will be more feminist, but there's certainly a significantly better chance. And as a party of the left who is more progressive, you know, we have to plough that furrow and, and, and we do at Westminster. And I think, you know, the point about what powers will we have as an independent country? Well, we will have greater powers, first of all, to get away from Westminster and the old boys club. So even the building, the building is designed in a very masculine and macho way. It's designed to intimidate you. We are guarded, understandably, by, you know, folk with machine guns. It's designed to keep democracy and people out. You know, you look at the Scottish Parliament, it's it's much more inclusive and open and was by design meant for people to come and engage with. And I think when your lines of communication are shorter and you're closer to your politicians and, and the decision-making is closer to the people, you, ha you just have better government, you're held to account better and you have a better idea of what's going on. I, you know, I firmly believe that many, many of those who are elected to Westminster have just gone from one institution to another, you know, whether it's Eton to Oxford to, to Westminster, and they all look the same, they all sound the same, they all make the same decisions, and there's groupthink. That, that's what it comes down to. The financial crash happened in 2008 because of, frankly, male groupthink. That is a fact. It's been, it's been proven. So 
we need a diversity of ideas and of people and of gender because it makes for better decision making, it makes for better government, it makes for better policies, policies that represent everybody. Um, and Sally talks about, you know, the very sharp end of that. What's that like on the street, you know, when you're being harassed? When you have a prime minister who, who doesn't even know how many children he's got, who says such horrific things about women, who, you know, behaves in such a grotesque manner with little regard for the rule of law or democracy, of course, people in general are going to think, well, that's fine to behave like that. You know, you have to lead from the front. And so independence gives us that opportunity to do that, not just for our own people, but on the global stage, you know, and we will attract, I think, when we are independent, very different um, people from different walks of life uh, to business, to invest, and to be in our government and in our politics. And that that's really important. And we can make a parliament and a government that's more inclusive, as we have done in the Scottish Parliament. I love the fact that hybrid proceedings have continued and hopefully will continue in the Scottish Parliament while we're all dragged down to Westminster just to vote. And folk like Stella Creasy can't you know, bring their baby into the chamber and can't get and can't get cover. You know, I mean, that's a ridiculous situation. Well, I'd throw in a few nuggets of my own, but I think you've covered it really well there, Hannah, about the, the differences in terms of the Westminster approach. And I think, you know, many of us who've read Winnie Ewing's book will uh, know from reading that, that things haven't changed over a long period of time. And it's uh, worth recalling her uh, experiences as a lone SIP woman MP at, uh, at Westminster. Uh, Sally, looking ahead now to the independent referendum, I know our listeners will be keen to hear your thoughts on how uh, women help shape that debate. Polling post-referendum in 2014 indicated that women were decisive in delivering a no vote, uh, with 57% voting no, while 53% of men voted yes. We all know that it wasn't the infamous patronising Better Together adverts that delivered that vote. So why do you think women were less convinced than men to vote yes in 2014? I think, as a group, women are more risk-averse. They're less likely to like jump and take that risk and at the time independence was a risk because we got told we were going to get um our eu membership revoked which obviously has happened anyway and i think maybe now with the fact that the trust is sort of gone women are more likely this time round to realize actually what we were told last time was lies so this time round well we've not got that to lose so let's go for it with us before there was definitely that thing where it was like we can't risk taking that and not getting back into the EU. And Hannah? Yeah, I, I think it's it's complex and it's multi-layered um, because I think there are women who desperately wanted to vote yes and got to the ballot box. And, I, you know, I've got a number of friends who phoned me and said, I got there and I couldn't do it. I was, there was, there was a, there was a hesitancy. Mm. And it was, I think, because their head had been filled with the nonsense from the no campaign in the final days, but then instantly regretted it. And, you know, now we are living in the no, as in the N-O, because Scotland voted no, but also we're living in the no, as in knowing the outcome of what a no vote means. And people have been lied to. They've been, had the wool pulled over their eyes, promises made on pensions, on Europe, on all sorts of things that have proven to be a load of nonsense. So I think it will be different this time round, but we still have a job to do to not just encourage women to take part, and, and I think that's what it will be about, is I think Sally's right about the, the, the element of risk. Women women make decisions in different ways. Um, you could say, 
you know, they, they, they are more risk averse, but also they're more practical, you know, and they, they, they and, you know, we're speaking very generally here. We have to tailor our messages for, for all different groups, I, I think is, is particularly important. But we have to make sure that women particularly are at the centre of the decision making and the shaping of the, of, of the arguments and the debates. Um, and whatever, you know, in terms of media. And we have a big challenge, I think, ahead of us as well, particularly with social media and online, um, because there's so much misinformation out there and there's so much manipulation of social media. And a lot of women are being harassed online. We've talked a lot about the online harms issues. Uh, so we have to make sure that uh, our, our debate is a safe place for everybody um, and that we're inclusive in, in the way that we do that. And I think that's that's really important. The kind of debate that we have, we cannot let our opposition dictate that. Uh, and I see some really positive signs, and you know, great work being done not just at Westminster, but by you know those in the Yes movement mm. at the moment already. You know, to answer those tough questions, but also to have well, you know, as much detail as possible, yeah. but to bring as many people as possible into the debate and the discussion. Well, polling now shows that that gap in 2014 is all but. Disappear, disappeared now. Yeah, D- does that reflect what you hear on the doors or when speaking to women about their uh, choice in a future uh, independent referendum for Scotland? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think there are there are a lot of there are a lot of women that I know who wouldn't necessarily have been engaged in politics or or the issues, but particularly since Nicola has come uh, to be first minister and in recent times during the pandemic have relied on her calm, common sense, straightforward approach of getting the facts out there and, and doing our best and also realising we're not always going to get it right and it's not going to be perfect. And in, contrast, and in contrast to uh, the UK government making the difficult decisions uh, earlier uh, sometimes and yeah. you know being willing to take the the flack for that um, the number yeah. I've lost count the number of times she's made a decision and then she's been proven right uh, yeah. after we some suffer, we suffer as a nation from you know that old school internal cringe not being able to necessarily always believe in ourselves because we've been browbeaten for so long by Westminster I think there is an element of that and I think in recent times you know particularly since the referendum we had an adult conversation as opposed to the Brexit debate, which was just screaming from the sidelines and, and a load of misinformation. You know, the, the great thing about the last independence debate was it included people and it asked people a serious question about what kind of nation they wanted to be. Now, things have changed so much since then, and I think people are ready to have that debate and discussion again and and do it in a way that, that includes everybody. Sally, do you, do you think those uh, views have changed, the, the polling has changed, uh, because of uh, good governance in Scotland, because of the the actions of Nicola Sturgeon, maybe because of uh, Brexit, they they seem to come up as the most decisive reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well with the pandemic, it's almost been like a little snapshot into the future of what it could be like having. Um, obviously, we've got a woman first minister who's done such a fantastic job of keeping us feel like we're being listened to, and also. She appreciates how difficult the decisions are that she on the people of Scotland. Um, and then you compare that to Boris Johnson, who's just sort of just a, like disarray down there. It just seems like the left hand doesn't know what the right's doing. 
Um, That's being kind. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm conscious of the words I'm using here. I, I, I always, I always think it. You know, it, be, it might be better to say the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing down there. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. But yeah, we are very lucky to have Nicola leading us up here. Sally, how important? Important point as well, Drew. If I could just say, because sure. I see quite a lot of the time. You know, I see a lot, and I'm sure we all do. The frustration that people have: Why are we not independent yet? Why are we not there yet? You know, nobody expected there to be a global pandemic, but we have. We have proven, you know, through Nicholas' leadership and the, and the leadership and work of our cabinet and our parliamentarians and across, the, you know, the country in, in the moments of most distress and challenge, we can manage these issues with limited powers and with one hand tied behind our back. And part of the strategy to independence was always about good governance. It was always about getting into power um, pro- proving ourselves, proving ourselves to people that we could be, uh, competent in government and and being a good opposition. So when folks say, why are you bothering with Westminster, all of that, well, you know, we're, we're, we're not an abstentionist party. That's not our policy. And we are doing a really important job of being the official opposition, frankly, at Westminster. But we are also doing a very important job in Scotland of running the country. And, and that has helped bring people across to our cause. So I guess I would just want to speak directly to those who do who are frustrated. We're all frustrated. We well, are having let, to watch the disaster at Westminster yeah. unfold. But this is all part of the strategy. Well, let's talk about let's talk about point. let's talk about those frustrated that might want to do something about it. How important do you think it is for women to get involved in grassroots campaigning um, and uh, the independence activism? I mean. It, it's so vital. I cannot describe to you the whole reason I got into politics was because I saw my mum, a single mum in a pretty poor working class area, get involved locally in her own community. So she fought to save local schools. She worked, went on the board of various local organisations and she even set up an after school club. I remember her getting thousands and thousands of pounds of lottery funding um, and working with another group of women because they didn't have any childcare after schools. And she worked with those women, they got an after school club, and that meant that they could all work, you know, work normal hours. Um, you know, those kind of things. So politics doesn't always have to be politics with a big P. Politics with a small P in terms of community activism, you know, taking on local issues is is just as important and feeds into the broader narrative of independence because the two are connected. We have more equal communities in society, but then also getting involved directly in the independence campaign, going and knocking on folks' doors. If you're a well-kent face locally, people will trust you. You know, we said last time, if you just convince one person to vote, no, go from no to yes, we'll win. The same will be true again. We're, we're, we're obviously polling around and above 50%, but we want that we want that yes vote to be as overwhelming as possible. And so like- getting out and doing that is important. Yeah. And Sally, you, you've been out um, campaigning, you've, you've done the door knocking, the grassroots campaigning. Do, do you think it's important for people, especially for women, uh, to get involved in that for the, the forthcoming campaign for independence? Yeah, absolutely. And you had an episode recently um, with my friend Danny talking about um, grassroots activism. And I think she made some really strong points on um, why grassroots activism is so important, but especially for women. It, for If you have somebody come into your door and you're a young woman or a woman of any sort, it, it might be a little bit intimidating to have 
sort of older male who you find it more difficult to relate to. So that's why it's so important to have people of all walks of life getting out on the door so that no matter who you come across, there's somebody that you can relate to and relate to their experiences. Well, Sally, I'm your seasoned campaigner, as is uh, Hannah. What, what do you think the barriers have been for women to get involved in political activism? Oh, there are so many um, <laughs> things that have been barriers for me. I think the abuse women face, for one thing, so as a woman working in politics, I've been in this field for just over five years now. And some of the things I've faced are just disgusting. Things like getting asked if I'm the mistress and then people asking about that and asking me why I don't find that funny. That's a joke. You should be able to laugh it off as if I'm too sensitive or something like that. I've been harassed by men in other mm. teams and um, just there's just so many things. So and. I'm not sharing this to put women off. It's sharing it to say that this happens, but you have to use your voice and you have to not let people gaslight you into thinking that that's an okay situation. You have to share it with other people so that you don't sort of sit and live with these experiences on your own and think this is just part of politics. It is at the moment, but it shouldn't be. It doesn't make it okay. So like sharing these experiences hopefully mean that over time there'll be less of them. It'll be less acceptable. And, and listeners can't see the poster behind Hannah's head, um, which says, not your darling. Uh, I, I uh, assume there's quite a lot of uh, that kind of um, kind of misplaced um, humour and misogyny that goes on uh, when when you're out on the, the doorstep sometimes. But what, what would you say uh, to women who are interested in campaigning but don't know where to uh, start? Um, I would say... For as scary and as overwhelming as it might be, the, for me, what's even scarier is the thought of not using my voice and having other people who don't know my experiences talking for me. So being empowered and if, if it feels too overwhelming, reach out to people. When I reached out to Hannah, I couldn't have been more supportive. People want to help you. They want to see you do well. Um, so you can like feel free to drop me a message, drop your local MP, MSP a message, ask them how you can get involved. Um, the women voices will always be more welcomed. And if you find the right people, you will be supported and they will make sure that your voice is heard and that you're supported when you do use your voice. And, and, and that's a really important to reach out because there's a lot of like-minded women who want to hear their uh, voice uh, being uh, recognised. But, uh, you know, it, 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 getting together with others can empower that, can it, Hannah? Oh, definitely. And it's also about us creating space for each other. You know, I didn't, when Sally first contacted me, I didn't plan to talk about my own experiences. I was just going to talk about the general policy issue, but I ended up doing that because I felt it was important. Um, and we ended up with all this media coverage that I don't think either of us had expected, you know, and, and that was that was really important. And I think it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's the camaraderie as well. Like, I remember being involved in student politics um and then being out of politics for, for quite a significant period of time. Politics is actually really good fun, you know, a lot mm. of the time. it's You make incredible friendships and bonds, bonds that can last a lifetime. And, you know, you get to bounce ideas off each other, come up with new ideas. And, you know, there are also, I've had my fair share of misogyny, you know, within the party and outside that and from people in, in other parties and none. But I've also had a lot of men support me. You know, I stood against four men for selection. And I mean, they all fought with each other like ferrets in a sack, <laughs> but they were they were pretty kind to me, actually. And when I got selected as the candidate, they all rallied around me 
Um, and, you know, I think women can often have a unique ability to, to bring people together and to, you know, to look at things from a different perspective and a different lens. And, you know, yeah. that, that's really important. But, but, but ultimately, I genuinely believe that this is it's the best job and the best line of work in the world. You get to help people and you get to be involved in your, in your local community. And, local and that, that's important, isn't it? It isn't one thing or the other. This is about, you know, having the right mix of you know, people and voices in politics to make sure that society is reflected and women are clearly under-represented uh, and under-reflected, um, you know, despite, you know, the, the positive moves to try and uh, level that up and there's still a lot more work to do. But I was interested just to pick up on one of the things that you were saying there about the fun of campaigning. I, th- I don't think it's stressed often enough that when you're in the, a team of people out in a campaign, and I know that you'll both be able to reflect this, it can be a really good laugh. I, one of my favourite parts of campaigning is uh, is speaking to the public, <laughs> get out, you know, be it in the the streets or on the doorsteps, and it's it's actually a really rewarding uh, process. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've we've ended up with a folk club and a hill walking club, <laughs> and you know, people spend you know a lot of time giving each other support particularly when new people come along um but yeah there's there's usually i mean this is obviously outside of covid times but you know there was always a cup of tea and a bacon roll at the end of a canvassing session you know i have such fond memories of my first and 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 particularly second elections the third one not so much because it was in the deepest darkest december but particularly my first election where there was just so much fun and camaraderie and you know it's it's like being part of a big family you know sometimes you fall out sometimes you disagree but ultimately you're all in it because you want scotland to be independent and you want to live in a more equal nation i know you've had fun even when it's been freezing sally haven't you when you've been campaigning yeah absolutely we're obviously just um a few days out from the two years anniversary of the 2019 campaign and as much as that was hard and at the time i don't know if we were enjoying it but now looking back (laughs) it's like it's so fun to look back and you just yeah the memories you make and i don't know if it's yeah just the the such a short space of time where you're spending so much time with people but it is great fun and i do think looking in on politics it seems to be so serious but actually at the heart of it you're just mixing with people who you um share the same beliefs with and yeah it's great fun and and it's great to spark ideas off people that you meet as well and to pick things up so it's really quite an enlightening uh, process finally i I, I want to uh uh, wrap things up by asking you uh each a a direct question in an independent Scotland, starting with you, Hannah, uh, if you had the opportunity to implement policy, what would that one main change be that you would make? Um, I think probably it would be equal parental leave for men and for women of at least a year fully paid with and, and proper, you know, say proper, we have an excellent childcare policy in Scotland, but even greater... Uh, childcare free um, because I think that is one of the key things that holds women back uh, or they are held back by is the attitude that is towards women um, because they, you know, because men can't physically have children but also and although men can now get paternity leave and parental leave, it's not anything like the same as women and I think if that was equalised that would be something that would lead to a much more equal society. I mean, there's lots and lots of other policies, but that, I think that that's the one that for some reason uh, that comes, you know, 
to mind. And Sally, when you're in power in an independent Scotland and you're able to implement the policy, what's the uh, poli- the main one that you would go for? Well, I think I have to say, I have to plug <laughs> my own work here and go for um, street harassment and making that a crime. Obviously recognising that people have real concerns with giving um, police more powers, but also um, when you put something like that in law and say that street harassment is a crime, it should hopefully create change in society where it becomes almost like, you know, like drink driving. That was when that um, became illegal. It's almost self-policing. You you wouldn't let your friends drink drive anymore. You, and so hopefully that would happen the same way where men call out other men and they stop it happening. Okay, and we obviously need to get to the point where we need these full powers and levers to implement all these policies. On that note, um, can I thank you, uh, Hannah Bardell MP and Sally Donald for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.